Hey there tech fan listeners, and welcome to tech fan number 326. Tim's not here this week, so you've just got my dulcet tones. It'll be a shorter show because who could stand that for too long? Hey there everybody, as I said in the introduction, Tim's not here this week so it's just going to be a solo show from me. Um, As I also alluded to in the introduction, probably going to be shorter, I think uh, subjecting you guys to an hour of just me rambling on by my own is the equivalent of playing Metallica into the cells at Gitmo, so I won't do that. Um, I'll run through the show notes that we've got together for this week, Um, but obviously as I'm not bouncing off Tim, it's just me. I will probably run through that stuff a little bit more quickly than we would normally do, but I do want to cover some of the stuff we've listed here because I I think some of it's fairly important. You'll be wondering where Tim is. He's had some personal issues that he needs to deal with today. Uh, Last week we couldn't record because it was the Thanksgiving holiday and on the Thursday and Tim, as uh, regular listeners will know, working in a car dealership um, has to work on the Thanksgiving weekend because... uh, I guess people, after they've given thanks, they like to go out and buy cars. So, busy time for him. Uh, And this week, he's also got something work-related that he needs to attend to today. So, he gave me a call earlier on and suggested that he might miss the show. And so, I thought, if that was the case, that I would, um, bearing in mind we'd missed last week, I'd sit down and record something on a solo basis so that we have some content in the feed Um, And you guys don't think that we've been eliminated by rogue agents, Apple's marketing arm trying to shut us off, (laughs) given that we sometimes can be critical of Apple. And that leads me into first topic for this week. I guess a lot of you guys who are Apple fans will be, or or people who certainly follow Apple in the industry, will be aware that Apple had some difficulty this week. Turns out that there is a bug in High Sierra, which is the latest version of macOS, and that bug was pretty significant. Effectively, kind of to boil it down, you were able, if you had physical access to a machine that was logged in, you were able to go into the user settings area and you were able to um, that by default on High Sierra, that area is locked and you have to enter a, an admin password to unlock it and allow you to make changes. You were able to unlock it by just issuing a username of root without a password. Uh, and that would unlock it and allow you to make changes, create a new account, make an account administrative if it was a stand account, what have you. And obviously that's a pretty big bug. The root account on a Unix or a Linux system is kind of the master account. It's account that has godlike powers it has the most ability to make changes to the system so the fact that root is enabled by default in there on a high sierra system without a password is bad enough but the fact that you could then actually access that that account from a regular user level logon prompt you're not meant to be able to do that it's meant to be a terminal only account 
Um, so the fact that you were able to do that and basically invoke system privilege changes is a pretty major security flaw. Doubly embarrassing for Apple because High Sierra for a start was meant to be kind of a maintenance polish update of Sierra. And in fact, we found that I think a lot of people feel that this version has been one of the buggier releases they've issued in the last few years. And secondly, Apple, you know, capitalizes in the industry and in their marketing and in their corporate starts, really, as being very proactive on security and considering user privacy uh, and user security to be one of the most important features of their software and hardware stack design. So to miss something like this and actually have it out there on the product, let's, just, let's face it, has been in testing for six, seven months for somebody to just find it out and post it to a user forum, which is what they did, was very, very embarrassing. So Apple has um, scrambled to fix this problem. They actually use their very rarely used uh, and little known ability to actually proactively push an update to any computer. So if you've been a high Sierra user and you've been connected to the internet on your Mac since they issued the patch, which I think was yesterday, then uh, you'll already have it. You don't need to go and do a software update and accept that patch. Basically, you'll have just seen and you should just have seen a notification saying your your computer has been patched. Um, so, you know, at least they have that capability and they have proactively pushed the patch out. Fortunately, the patch broke something else, some found, broke file sharing for some users, and can't can't really ding them for that because that's a that's a facet of having to issue a patch very quickly without the less story, the level of testing you would normally expect from, from software updates. And so I'm sure they'll fix that well, that problem shortly as well. But in the meet, and there's a workaround been issued for that. So I'm not going to bag on them too much for that. But that's just the nature of the position they found themselves in. But what I will bag them on for is the position they found themselves in is something that's pretty much self-inflicted. You know, Tim and I have raved about this for some time that we're not really comfortable that the level of software quality that we're getting from Apple nowadays is really up to scratch. And I think it's always been the case, thinking about it, that Apple's software quality has been variable up and down over the years. I can recall back and think of several either deliberately uh, made design choices or alternatively bugs and serious issues and ability to respond to issues that have been perhaps Apple found wanting uh, and certainly not they, their approach to software quality is nowhere like their obsessive approach to hardware design which is unfortunate because the software is as much a feature of a system nowadays as the hardware is in a way the difference is the software can be more easily updated than hardware can, naturally. But, yeah, disappointing. I I hope that this particular issue now is a wake-up call for Apple. They've been really roundly criticised for this in the tech press, on a lot of the tech podcasts. And I, I do know for a fact that senior Apple executives listen to some of the more well-known Apple podcasts run by Apple pundits like Accidental Tech Podcasts and things like that. They also read, um, you know, well-known Apple sites like Mac Rumors and 
tidbits by uh, by Adam Enks and John Gruber's Daring Fireball in particular. And so when they get dinged on for this stuff like software quality, Apple is aware of it. They may they normally don't show any outward signs of being aware of it, but I think they are. I very much hope that this will cause them to, if they weren't already doing so, take a long, hard look about how they're managing software development and software maintenance inside Apple. I personally would like to see perhaps a slowdown in the in the maintenance cycle. We've talked about this before. I, I don't believe that the Mac needs a new iOS update every year. Never used to. I think given how hard they're working on iOS, and iOS is almost like two products now because iOS for iPad is different than iOS for Mac. Uh, iOS for Mac, there's a Freudian slip. iOS for iPhone. The capabilities of those two systems are now different. Uh, they're based on the same core, but actually in terms of functional design and, and uh, features and capabilities, there's been some divergence there. So I think having those two bits of software to work on every year and the nature of the mobile market kind of means you have to keep those updated every year, uh, issue a new version every year. To me, suggests that if Apple are not going to assign the same sort of resources to the Mac team for software, then maybe the Mac team for software should be working to a, an 18-month or two-year schedule rather than a 12-month schedule. That's what I like to see, and I like to see fewer howlers like this from Apple in the future. And this is a different David here talking to you later on in the week. Uh, I've been sick this week, so this show is very late in terms of being edited and put together. And I also realized as I was doing that, that I forgot to do sponsor read. So here I am to remind you that our sponsor is maxsales.com, OWC. Uh, in terms of products to uh, mention that they've got on the website at the moment, they have a whole load of holiday deals stocking stuffers. So um, loads and loads of different things in there. That's worth having a go. But also in the press recently was uh, a couple of people talking about how, um, uh, who was it now? Was it was Marco Armand, um, well-known Mac developer, was saying that he felt that the uh, 2015 MacBook Pro, the 15-inch MacBook Pro, was, in his words, the best computer ever made, certainly the best laptop Apple ever made. Uh, and he felt it was superior to the current Touch Bar Macs in terms of price and value and performance uh, features and that sort of thing. So if you fancy a machine like that, uh, MacSales.com can help you out. I'm looking at their website now. They have 2013 MacBook Pro 15 inches with quad i7 core processors, 16 gigs of RAM, and 256 gig SSDs for $12.99. That is a deal. Um, those are um, very good condition computers. They've been refurbished by uh, Mac Sales. Um, they're graded, so you know exactly what sort of condition you're going to get for a computer like that. The $12.99, that's probably uh, slightly less than you would pay for a new MacBook, a 12-inch MacBook, which is a little tiny computer. It's a great machine, but it's no 15-inch MacBook Pro. So even a 5-year-old 15-inch MacBook Pro, that's a heck of a machine for $12.99. So check it out if you're in the mood for a new laptop. Uh, uh, or an old new laptop, Resonant MacBook Pros, 15-inch MacBook Pros. Those always were beasts, um, and that's the deal. Check it out, 
MaxSales.com. Okay, the issues with Internet Things stuff. As regular listeners know, we have um, some feedback from guys like Brendan who don't really like Internet of Things. I'm kind of ambivalent on it myself. But having said that, so here's where I'm torn. Okay, Internet of Things gets a lot of mixed press, I would say. Partly because well, you've got to, you've got a couple of camps. You've got the Brendan camp, which basically, uh, why should you connect this stuff to the internet? It's a massive security hole. It's a big privacy, uh, a big privacy pass. You're basically giving up a whole lot of your privacy for the sake of some flickering doodad. Uh, and then you get the people who, uh, but just basically say oh, it's the height of first world consumerism to have light bulbs that connect to the internet. I kind of fall between those two things. I am concerned about the security of Internet of Things. I get concerned about IT security in general, and I see this in my day job quite a lot. The problem is, is a lot of people treat IT security as a an add-on. It's part of the product. It's part of a solution. And a lot of the way that gets implemented in a lot of products and a lot of solutions is you have a team who look after it, and they are given the same level of weight uh, and responsibility and management as the team looking at the physical design or the usability design or the functional design or what have you. And, and really, that's the wrong way to do security. Security should be about a strong, well-thought-out and well-defined baseline in terms of what is and isn't acceptable in terms of how a product functions, how any group of product functions. And then that that's basically incorporated to everything, and then everything else gets built on top. That's the proper way to do security. And um, that way you're not reinventing the wheel. You're not reinventing systems every time you do something new. You're using a core basis. And if you're not reinventing everything, that gives you less opportunity to make mistakes. Because every time you redo the same thing over and over again, there is an opportunity to have bugs or make mistakes or have weak design or to take shortcuts for expediency or to solve a functional problem. And all of those things are the enemies of proper information security. And by that, I'm talking about information security. I'm not talking about technical IT security. I'm talking about everything from your approach to data, where it sits, how it's stored, rather than the technicalities of protocols and firewalls and configurations and that sort of thing. So, um, as I say, a lot of companies don't do that. A lot of solutions aren't built like that. A lot of processes and systems aren't built like that either. Most of them, to be honest. And that's where this falls down. You are basically dealing with a situation where each of these companies who go out and design an Internet of Things system are redoing their security model from scratch every time. Even if they have the same security model for all their products they've defined a new one for themselves they've not adopted something from somebody else that maybe might be more robust or stood the test of time and then the various bits and pieces that go as to make up the actual security technical functionality is often kind of assembled on the fly as and when they need it by a team whose job is to make the product secure as part of the feature list and that's where things fall down so I saw something on Ars Technica a couple of weeks ago about a product that kind of 
given all of that that I've just said, kind of really made me might be my blood run cold. And this is a ambient cloud of Internet of Things distributed Linux servers. And from a technical point of view, this is kind of a cool idea, but from a practical point of view, as I say, this really worries me. This is from a company called Lunera, uh, and they have a product called Smart Lamps. And these are uh, basically LED light bulbs, but they're also Internet of Things light bulbs. And these aren't just ones that can be controlled like a Philips light bulb with an app on your phone. These have a full system on a chip Linux server in them. Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, two gigs of RAM, and two gigs of flash storage, all in the end cap of the light bulb. You've also got um, iBeacons in there for uh, location services over Bluetooth and Wi-Fi mesh capabilities in the software. So they, I think they're um, th these things. If, if you imagine like the if a Raspberry Pi and a light bulb had a child, this is what you'd end up with. <laughs> they're you know low low power, low performance machines. But the idea is if you have a building full of them then you have a, a, a distributed computing mesh network that can do all sorts of things without needing to have additional infrastructure like, you know, air conditioning, power distribution, cabling, anything like that. So the idea is, is your light bulbs become a day center. What could possibly go wrong, I hear Brendan say. And, uh, you know, this is what worries me. The thought of hundreds of lamps all running computing is is you know is a, is a great idea from a purely technical aspect but the information security risks of running software on that just gives me gives me sleepless nights really does not only that they're in a mesh so any flaws in one of them is a flaw that can be exploited or spread to all of them if you have an exploit that manages to breach one of those light bulbs, so presumably that, that exploit can then rip through the whole lot. And before you know it, you've owned the whole network. And then with that, you can do with it what you will. And all the, you know, the criminals out there, the cyber criminals, they have lots of great ideas about what you can do with distributed computing networks like this. Uh, effectively, the botnets we here talked about in in the press are are this writ large. They are groups of computers that have been taken over by criminals and used for their nefarious purposes. And, you know, all the, I imagine what they would do is all the standard stuff that cyber criminals like to do, denial of service attacks, perhaps mining a bit of cryptocurrency. That's a one that's gaining popularity at the moment. Websites are, are able to do that when you visit them and then they install malware. So they, your computer is sat in the background generating money for them on your electricity from your computer's performance well just imagine how much of that you could do if you have hundreds of thousands of light bulbs that you own all over the world that have those computing capabilities you know all of these things are, are fairly low powered and can't deliver a lot of functionality but multiply that up by the numbers and it scales up very nicely very quickly so yes mining cryptocurrency denial of service hacking foreign networks using you know, probes and that sort of thing. If you've got a whole load of computers that can do that for you in an automated basis, happy days. Crypto attacks 
encrypting other people's computers and then acting as a um, command control system so that you can get your ill-gotten Bitcoin, Bitcoin um, ransoms. Make sure that the encryption that you're doing on people's infected machines is properly strong. There's all sorts of stuff you could do. Is that a good enough reason to, to stop the development of technology like this? Probably not, but the problem is that, as I said at the beginning, Companies that do Internet of Things often don't cover the security well and don't maintain the security well. Um, just like I was criticising Apple for. If Apple can't do it, who says that a small startup company that's working frantically to get their product out the door is not going to make those sorts of mistakes as well? Now, <laughs> of course, the article says security has been a major consideration in the design. Everything's encrypted. All the debug stuff is turned off. Trusted boot chains. You know what? It's all it's all great, but the more complicated the security on a product like that is, the more chances are that there are bugs that can be exploited. And if they become popular, then the bad guys go looking for the bugs, and they always find them because they are always there. There are no truly secure computer systems. The only ones that are really secure are the ones that have stood the test of time have been out there unchanged for a long time and all the bugs and the flaws and the exploits, as they've been found, they've been fixed. Anytime you're going out and creating something new, you are basically doing that all over again, including bringing along for the ride all the mistakes and all the bugs and everything that come from designing software new. Designing secure software is really hard, really hard. Um, anybody who's ever done any coding and has to have has, has had to debug their own code knows how hard it is to see mistakes in code you've written yourself um it really really is it's it's virtually an impossible task it's it's something a problem in the way that that we're that our brains operate is that it's very easy to read even if you're writing text let alone code to read something and see the mistakes that you've made in it you can't, it's very difficult to even proofread your own text just for that, that same reason. You, the mind just skips over the bits that are wrong because the mind recognises it did something wrong uh, subconsciously and just uh, kind of erases it from your perception. And that's why security is hard. And open source is not the solution to these sorts of things. I hear that said, that said a lot in, uh, in my day job is, oh, well, if you use open, stuff, open source stuff, then it's more secure. It potentially could be more secure. It doesn't mean it is. The idea behind open source is that the source code is available for people to review and find bugs in. And they do. But often they don't because to actually review code and find bugs, and especially security bugs, is a specialized piece of work that takes a long time. And the problem with open source is you're never going to get paid for doing that. So there's relatively few people who are out there reviewing open source code just out of the goodness of their heart. And also as well, there's masses of open source projects out there. So, you know, there's been bugs found in open source software that's used everywhere in every single web server virtually on the planet that's been out there for ages. And bugs have only have been found only after many, many years because nobody's ever got around to reviewing the source code. So open source is not necessarily the uh, the saviour of this sort of thing either. So I, I hope that in the future, if the Internet of Things does become a thing, uh, a, you know, it, it becomes more than just a passing fad, that 
a better approach to these security problems is is adopted by everybody. I don't know what the answer is, whether standards groups or committees or, you know, protocol people or, uh, yes, yeah, standing committees of, of guys setting, setting policy and everything is the answer or whether it'll just be survival of the fittest. But the problem is, while while it's kind of been thrashed out, us poor consumers at the end are the ones who have our data at risk, and that's a concern. So a little bit of follow-up from the comments we were talking about with Owen a couple of weeks ago about the Amazon key. This kind of illustrates what I've just been talking about, about the vulnerabilities in doing something new. Um, you remember that, that we were explained to Owen about the Amazon key system, which is the thing with the smart lock and the camera that allows couriers to unlock your door and put your packages from Amazon inside your property. Uh, and we explained that a Wi-Fi vulnerability had been found in this brand new product that basically meant that you could force it to reset for about 60 seconds. And during that time, the camera would not be recording. Obviously, again, a security flaw, a, a bug in the product, and there's probably many, many others. Well, um, one of our commenters, and I, I'm here in the notes, I don't have a name for this, so I apologize if, if you're listening to this going, hey, that was my comment, why didn't you give me attribution? So I apologize for that, but um, I don't have your name, sorry. Somebody said, on this page and various others, I've seen numerous comments by USians about couriers leaving parcels on the porch doorstep. Here in the UK, this doesn't happen as a signature is required when delivering a parcel. If you're not home, you get a notification card through the letterbox. Is this not standard procedure in the US? So uh, I don't think it is. I think from my own experience here in the UK, I would say that um, certainly on for, for many package delivery companies, Amazon, for instance, has a note on your on your account that allows you to designate a safe space for you to have parcels left in if you don't want if you're not in to have to receive them. And I have that on my on my Amazon account, but um, I don't think the I've ever have had an, an Amazon courier ever use that space. Um, they will often leave parcels with neighbours, but uh, normally they would uh, if, if they weren't able to deliver it at all then they would leave a card. Though uh, Amazon are pretty aggressive about actually finding, unless you're, there's literally nobody there at all, they won't deliver it. But um, they really try very hard to find somewhere to, to deposit it. But there's plenty of other people who won't. Uh, I think the difference here, is here in, certainly here in the UK, is there's so much pressure on these guys to get round and get their rounds done that uh, I've certainly had it where I've had couriers approach the door with a completed you weren't in card actually as they come up to the door because effectively if, if they don't get an immediate answer they want to move on to the next delivery maybe the US guys don't do that or maybe uh, I mean it's certainly true in the US that often a lot of properties are bigger and have more space certainly outside the cities than uh, the British properties do we don't really have porches because mostly our houses here in the UK aren't that big and they're not big enough plots of land to have big front gardens and porches uh, and where we do have porches they're not open porches that anybody can access they tend to be they tend to have windows on uh, and locked doors often so um, you can't really leave stuff inside very often uh, whereas in America often the, in my experience from from the times I've spent there many of the houses do have those 
facilities. So I guess if you have a porch, it would be tempting for a courier to leave something on there. I've never thought it's great because, yes, obviously the potential for theft is high. But, yeah, that, that could explain the difference. I, I mean, I don't, I don't think the Amazon key will ever be launched here in the UK. I don't think, I don't really see us British people going for it. We're very, very suspicious. A man's home is his castle and all that. I don't think we want um, people walking into our house even to deliver our favourite Amazon parcels. So here's a, um, we're talking a lot about this sort of stuff today, the uh, uh, cameras and smart locks and that sort of thing. So here's another Internet of Things story. Uh, Serenity Cordwell, who is a writer over at, um, I think she's at iMore. Pretty sure that's where she, uh, that's where she hangs her online hat. She, she's a big, she's kind of a, target audience for this podcast a a tech fan tech nerd if you like so she has internet of things uh up the wazoo she you know has loads of these things in her in her life because uh she's a tech she's not only a tech fan but a tech reviewer so she has a smart lock on her door lives in an apartment and uh, there's a story here i'll put i'll put this in the show there's a story here i'm all about the downsides of smart locks because effectively what she managed to do last week was lock herself out of her house and ended up having to climb through the window and the reason was she was up first thing in the morning uh, she had to go outside and pick up a parcel that somebody had left outside and she went out without her keychain without her key ring so she didn't have her key and she didn't have her phone with her and she had no way of... Uh, she'd also set her smart lock to automatically lock behind her when she went out through the door. And so it did, and she was stuck outside with no way of getting back in, short of climbing in through the window. Of course, being uh, fully internet thinged up, uh, there's video of her climbing in through her window because she had a camera covering her kitchen. So that's entertaining. Might be worth having a look at if you uh, if you enjoy watching people um, suffering the Schadenfreude of their uh, tech life. But it was an interesting story, and yeah, she called it human stupidity in the inter- in the age of smart things. Funnily enough, she'd actually joked with her husband about this. She said uh, because he'd been saying, "Oh, if the internet goes down, we won't know where to how to get in." through this door anymore and she said oh that's what she said and he said worst case we'll go parkour and break the window and then she actually had to do that so she the the problem is and and i guess this is i've worried about this with with my car actually um, because i have one of those cars with the the keyless entry where if you keep have the key fob on you you can get in and out of the car but uh you know if you do something stupid with the key fob, you could end up locked out of your car. What she was doing is she wasn't using her key. She wasn't carrying her key ring with her because she was so reliant on the smart lock because she could use her Apple Watch or her phone to get in and out. But if you walk out without either any of those things, you haven't got your key, you haven't got your smart device on, then you would you would be stuck. And that's what she found herself being. So, uh, yeah... I, I think the the problem is is that is that these smart devices, 
they expect you to use them a certain way. And if being a, a fallible human you don't, you can find yourself in trouble. So she, she now has set this lock so it doesn't lock behind her when she goes out. Good thing she'd left her window open, otherwise she wouldn't have been able to get back in at all. Uh, she talks about how she, you know, she tried to get hold of her husband to see if he, he, he could remotely unlock the door from being at work, but she wasn't able to get hold of him either. So, yeah, this is a salutary lesson. I, here's the thing about smart locks. Here where I, here's where I am on them. Is I would worry about the security aspects of it and the convenience aspects of it and the problems if the power went down or the internet went down and leaving me locked out. So if I went out and I had a smart lock on my door, I would probably always make sure I also had the key. And the thing that I find is that I, I wonder what problem the smart lock is trying to solve because the whole point about a key is a key is a thing you have with you that unlocks a door and it's a small thing it's a easily managed thing generally yeah it's not terribly inconvenient to have with you and so the idea that you should replace it with something far more expensive and um, electronic just so you have the convenience of not having to carry the key, it to me doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. I'm not sure what the advantage is there, because you're 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 solving a problem that not many people have. The key is kind of like established technology, and it works generally. Uh, yes, you know it. You can have problems with locks can break and keys can break and. You can lose keys, obviously. So I suppose the smart lock's helping you because you're less likely to use your phone, lose your phone than you are your key. Um, you can unlock the lock without your phone if you don't have it with you by going to a computer and logging on the internet and giving it your right credentials. I, <laughs> yeah. I can see that there are some circumstances where it may improve your life, but I think as this story demonstrates, there are circumstances when it won't. Now, don't get me wrong, it's very easy to walk out of a physical, walk out of a door with a, if it has a, one of these Yale style locks on, the, these are more common in the UK perhaps than they are in the US. Uh, in the US, I know you tend to have uh, mortise locks on, on your front doors, which means, you know, you can leave them unlocked. Here in the UK, we don't. We have the Yale-style locks, which basically means they do lock automatically behind you every time you go out. And so it is easy to lock yourself out of your house by leaving your keys inside. Um, and I suppose a smart lock helps you in those circumstances, provided you've forgot, not forgotten your phone if you have forgotten your key. But um, no, I, I'm not sold. You can probably tell. Anybody think that smart locks are a great idea? Anybody think that there's something that we really need? Anybody thinks that they're worth the these pro potential problems and risks? Write in and let me know. Well, I went for longer than I thought I would there. Um, no wiki trolling for this week because A, it's a lot more fun if I do that with somebody else, like Tim and I talk, talking about it, and B, I haven't had time to go find something. And I just had a quick look at my random link generator for wiki trolling, and it didn't come up with anything that I thought was particularly stimulating. 
So I think I'll leave that one till next week. Hopefully next week, um, Tim and I will be back on the show. I certainly look forward to speaking to him again. Uh, I hope today's show has not been too boring for you. And um, as I said, if you take issue with any that I have pontificated about over the last half an hour or so, feel free to email in and uh, speak to us. You can contact us on Twitter at TechFangPodcast. Though I've got to be honest with you, I'm really trying to avoid Twitter nowadays. It's degenerated into such a horrible, horrible place. And um, my timeline now is filled with an awful lot of people going on about things that I'm just tired of hearing people go on about. Um, Maybe I'm not following the right people, but it's just such hard work wading through all the dross and all the vitriol and all the, um, you know, the hate and kind of weird stuff that's going on on Twitter that, um, yeah, I, I will get notification. And so will Tim, if you, if you, uh, tweet to us. So please don't let my negativity put you off. Um, and in a similar vein, Facebook, we're on Facebook. Tim deals with all that. I don't because I, I'm not a lover of Facebook either. God, I'm sounding like an old curmudgeon, aren't I? You can also email to us, email us, the show at techfanpodcast.com or you can leave comments on our uh, techfanpodcast.com website so you can leave a comment on there as well all of these ways are ways to get hold of me or tim so if you want to feedback to us please feel free to do so otherwise i hope you have a good week uh, and i look forward to tim and i talking to you again in the very near future bye